Hello and welcome back to iBiology, the IBDP revision podcast that should not be your only resource for biology. Please go listen to Mr. Dunn as well. <laughs> However, if you do want to learn along with us, the resources we will be using are the IRB biology so, uh, study guide, the Oxford one, and the course book by Oxford as well. Um, furthermore, we I am also using my notes. You can't access those. Anyway, last time we started on unit one and today we're going to continue on unit one and the first then we'll be looking at transport as well as um, the origin of cells, mitosis and cell cycles. That is transport across a membrane. Yes, specifically that. Um, so the, first of all we need to be aware of the concept of diffusion. Diffusion is the pass, uh, is passive movement of particles from a region of high concentration to a region of low concentration due to the random movement of particles. So for example, um, one way to imagine that is that if you have a hand of marbles and you throw them into a box, they're going to be randomly shuffling around and in the end when they come to a stop, they're probably going to be, like they're, they're going to be evenly distributed. Except if the, uh, if the floor is tilted, then it yes. has to be you. <laughs> um, so the thing is though, uh, a lot of things in biology have a membrane, a plasma membrane, specifically what we're looking at. Um, and so we're going to have to see how do we get across that. Now, of course, there are some uh, things that uh, are able to just freely move across that. Very small particles and non-polar substances, specifically. So non-polar meaning mean that they don't have a charge. Like, what? what is an example? Uh, for example, ions, That will, those are polar substances. Uh, sometimes also ones with a very strong dipole dipole bond. What the hell is this? We're getting to it in unit two. Uh, <laughs> just know it's uh, po so polar substance. So basically things with a charge, it's difficult to get them across the membrane. But then what is, a, what very is, big. What is an example for an uncharged particle? Um, if we're going to go really chemistry there, like, so for example, oxygen. That's a small part, uh, oxygen gas specifically. That there's, that's a small part that can just, I believe, can just easily diffuse across a membrane. Oh, okay. Nice. Um, water, even though it's technically they do have a very strong dipole, um, is still able to uh, move across um, membranes as well. However, if we're going to start getting actual ions in there, such as sodium and chloride ions, then we're going to have to start using. Um, channels for facilitated diffusion. So um, there's the example that we're given always is the potassium channels and axons. We're going to get back to axons in unit. Yeah, unit six. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was trying to think what episode, but we don't know that yet. Um, so this uh, diagram, it's on page ten of the revision guide. Basically, it um, showcases the way that a potassium channel would work. So first, because of the charges, uh, part of the molecule would, uh, the way that the molecules are laid is that they are blocking the entrance. However, when uh, then the charges switch because of um, an active potential moving across the neuron, uh, the channels briefly open, uh, flipping open, uh, and but then are, uh, but then there's a globular subunit so basically, lobular is just a thing, around a round thingy, thingy um, that comes and blocks it in. So only a few potassium ions can flow across. And then when the charge switches back, it'll go back and 
Ah, yeah, so the charge causes the, the blocking thing is to switch um, yes. form, basically. Basically, yeah, for the channel to open and facilitate the diffusion to allow it to happen. Okay. And what makes that different from um, active transport? Because uh, facilitated diffusion differs by the fact that we don't need ATP. Ah, facilitated okay. diffusion is where the particles are still moving from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration. Mm. Um, so it's still natural for them to go in that direction. When it comes to active transport, it wouldn't be natural. It's kind of like, um, this is almost as if you were like building a path for marbles to roll down a hill. Mm -hmm. um, facil facilitated diffusion was as if there were like walls in the way and then you have to like knock holes in those walls for the uh, for the marbles to flow down. Mm -hmm. However, active transport is more that you're pushing the marbles up the hill. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. And that's why we need energy to do that. Makes sense. So... Um, but however, it's it's sometimes difficult to be able to, uh, to balance the concentration of something uh, just using facilitated diffusion. So one thing that we also need to know is osmosis. So that uh, it's the passive. So to just quote the study yet directly, it's the passive movement of water molecules from a region of lower solute concentration to a region of higher solute concentration across a partially permeable membrane. I um about that. <laughs> so partially what? Partially permeable membrane. No, no, that's the four. Um, a high, uh, low solute concentration, high solute concentration. Yeah. Okay, solute is basically anything that dissolves in water. Mm. And so, because we all like the water always wants to be nicely balanced. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. Uh, we want a nice even concentration across. Mm -hmm. So if one side is like has is very concentrated and one side is not concentrated at all, in order to balance out those concentrations, one thing we could do is move the solute. But because it's a partially permeable membrane, we can't do that. So instead, the water's like fuck it, I'm going over, <laughs> and uh, so the water moves uh, across the membrane to where it's more concentrated to make it less concentrated. Right. We can express this either using water potential or osmolarity. Osmolarity is how much solute there is, so a more solute is a higher osmolarity or a lower water potential. Because okay. the water potential is like how much water could we have there? And if it's uh, and if there's already like kind of low then it's a low water potential. So I know this is very unethical. But if you would have a snail which has a very high, which That's has a very high water concentration, and you like put salt over it, then the snail would dry out, right? Because yeah, the that's... water in the snail goes to the I mean, salty yeah, area. That's then... that's the idea. Of, that's why it's like that thing of you know, if you want to kill, if you like want to protect yourself from snails, just put a salt circle around your house. Because snails are so dangerous to us. I mean, yeah, it's, yes, obviously. <laughs> um... <laughs> I, I biology does not approve of killing snails. No, we don't. Go away. Um, so moving on, um, really, like if you understand the basic concept of osmosis, like, there's not that much more to learn, but it comes up a lot later as well, especially if we're going to be talking about plant biology and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, however, there's a, you also need to be able to know how to estimate osmolarity. Now, if you probably should have done a lab on this where you. Um, got pieces where you got pieces of fruit or vegetable, um, 
possibly ate them. A lot of people in our class did, um, but <laughs> mainly made small cylinders, threw them into some uh, waters of different concentrations, and then saw when water moved into the uh, into what in our case was a carrot or out of the carrot. Um, so, because so the way that you can consider that is when you uh, is that when it's a completely um, distilled water then there's a lot more like s minerals within the carrot than outside than in the water because there's no minerals in the water and so thus the water moves in to try and balance it out somehow and then when it's slightly more solid like it might still go in but there might not be as much going in and then like the amount going in will lower up until the point where the outside is more concentrated than the inside so the water inside the carrot will move out mm, so okay. that way mm -hmm. um if you have a graph you should uh you should see a downward slope so if your x axis is the concentration of the outside water um of whatever you have so some people have Sometimes it's salt solution. I believe we used glucose actually, um, and then the percentage mass change. It should be a downward slope. It's worrying if you're having an upward slope or if you're uh, you're already starting at a negative mass change in the beginning because that means whatever you're using is more pure than distilled water. <laughs> yes, but the idea is that if you then draw a best fit line through it, then the point where it crosses the um, x-axis mm -hmm. so where there would be no mass change that's the osmolarity of what of your fruit or vegetable ah, okay okay and also uh, the last part about this is that you don't want um, donor you want to make sure that you're putting donor organs and iso oh right we should probably discuss hypotonic hypertonic and isotonic Ew. yeah mm -hmm. um, All right, so hypotonic that is when uh, that's when the outside there's uh, is less concentrated than the inside, so water flows in. That's hypotonic. The uh, hypertonic is if the outside's more concentrated than the inside, so water flows out. Mm -hmm. And then isotonic is just when it's equal. Okay. Um, remember, because hypo means below, hyper means above. You'll see that in almost any like hypothermia. That's when something's uh, when you're below what your thermia should be, and <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. so uh, and so that means that the concentration outside is below of what is inside, mm -hmm. and hyper like for example hyperactive when you're more active, mm. that means that there's more out uh, there's more outside it's more concentrated outside. I don't know if that works with hyperactive, but yeah, I mean. Yeah, hyperactive. It's above act. Like, that's just where the word yeah. stem comes from. Okay. I mean, it's also hyperthermia, but a lot of people aren't too familiar with that term. So, so in the fruit, um, in the fruit uh, slash vegetable osmolarity thingy thing, is there a, a point where like there's iso isotonic, it? isotonic, like. So basically, if there's no if there's no um, if there's no mass change, then it's isotonic. Okay. The thing is, uh, the thing is, because you're only going to be using a couple levels, and your pro your fruit probably doesn't have a perfect um, osmolarity, like equal to some round number. It's unlikely that you're going to hit exactly that. Mm. So that's why we use the best fit line. Okay. Because it should be a straight line, probably. 
So, um, all of this has been nice and good. However, now we need to start talking about active transport. So basically, act, like we already said earlier, active transport is when we're putting ATP in to do the thing. <laughs> if you're pushing the marbles back up the hill, basically. Exactly. So um, ATP being energy for all the people who just did not pay attention at I am all. genuinely impressed if you managed to <laughs> avoid the term ATP. Um, what does ATP stand for? Uh, adenosine triphosphate, I believe. Okay. Shout out. <laughs> so, um, the idea... Uh, so, the basic idea is that we're b probably going to be using pump proteins. So, p pump proteins, basically, the particle enters the pump and binds, uh, and b uh, binds to the pump. Then the pump opens into the other direction and releases the particle. And where does the ATP come in? Um, that is, uh, that is, so the ATP also, I believe, binds to the pump. And the thing is, the reason, okay, the reason why anything has energy uh -huh. is because the bonds that it has. In huh? this, the, uh, the way we tend to use the ATP energy is by splitting it into ADP, adenosine diphosphate, and a phosphate ion. So we're kind of breaking that uh, phosphate bond and taking that oh energy to God. do things. I'm such an idiot. And oh my god, yeah, continue, and oh my god, yeah. Mm -hmm. Context for any viewers, <laughs> we are in our second semester of our second year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so the energy comes from the bake, baking, from the, the breaking, breaking of the, of the bond. Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have eight weeks of school to go, guys. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> um, one example that we're going to be using again, because we just loved it so much the first time, is in the axons again with sodium and potassium. There's a sodium-potassium channel and a sodium-potassium pump. Yes, because if you... And the channel is facilitated diffusion and the pump is active transport. Exactly. Okay. So the, uh, basically the way it works is that, the, uh, is that we're putting in two, uh, two potassium ions and... Uh, to get to the inside of the axon and three sodium ions to go outside because you might have remembered earlier that when we're creating the uh, current across that we're uh, that the, when the active potential is coming across then the channel opens and some po potassium goes out and if we never had anything to transport it back in well then we just forever be transporting out potassium and then our body can't work um, uh -huh. and we can't restore a passive potential uh -huh. And also, uh, so and the fact that only two potassiums go in and three sodiums go out is also an important detail, because that is the thing that allows a uh, potential to be created. But honestly, that's not that important. Uh, to be fair, it's not that important for your knowledge of um, pumps. It's more important than later on when we're going to be talking about um, axons, axons, and neurotransmission impedance. Um. So, yeah, it's transport vessels. So, pa uh, so page forty, I believe, on the textbook for a diagram of the oh, yeah. uh, pump. So you'll see, uh, you'll notice that basically the um, three uh, the three sodiums go in. It closes off. ATP comes along. It's, uh, the uh, opens up on the other side. Two potassiums come in um, as the sodiums go out. 
uh, the uh, P, it uh, closes up again. Phos uh, the phosphorus, I believe, at that point, it's released, and the uh, it opens up for the two potassiums to come out. Um, so it is in my notes. Uh, so I put in my notes that apparently we should make sure that we know it's ice, and that's what Mr. Dunn told us back when we first learned this. Um, and yeah. <laughs> um so yeah like the concept itself shouldn't be that difficult but i mean if you're wondering what why is it doing all of this opening and closing um and why is like the phosphor like sticking to it and then sticking into it it's all because of the uh way that it's arranged in three-dimensional space and the bonds like changing forming and all the forces acting on it on page uh, 38 there's also a diagram of like a more three-dimensional uh, um, protein structure yeah protein the, pump I think I believe yeah in the pump good okay on to vesicles oh no this was feel bad yeah vesicles are way much like, yeah they're they're earlier in the textbook but they're later in the revision guide um now, sometimes we're also across a membrane and we want to put in bigger things, such as, for example, um, lipids or, phos uh, or phospholipid molecules. Um, actually, no, it was prote protein lipids, I believe. Lip Lipoproteins, lipo that was the term. I've never ever heard that term. Okay. We'll learn about it in Unit 6 in digestion, absorption, um, or um. I guess relearn it. Um, so, the idea is that we, uh, it's almost like the cell kind of sucking it in and then releasing it out. So endocytosis, it's basically part of the plasma membrane is pulled inwards and then the um, membrane closes above it, closing off a small circle. So it like becomes... a vesicle. Yes, uh, which it becomes so basically a droplet, a droplet of fluid is closed off within it. Um, and, then they can, and then they can move along the cytoplasm, carrying whatever they're carrying for whatever the cell needs. Um, the, so yeah, that's very basically endocytosis, mm -hmm. um, and exocytosis is the reverse, so that the vesicles, they fuse with the uh, plasma membrane, then the contents just go out and... Into the, the exterior. And the membrane flattens. Like, exocytosis, exterior, so it... Also, exo, out, endo, in. Exit. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> if, I mean, if you want, like... It's not exactly the same, but like if you think about like the membrane fusing, um, if you've ever like kind of seen bub, uh, if you've ever had like a drink where there's bubbles on top, and then you kind of see the bubbles floating around and combining. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's kind kind of one way that you might be able to imagine it, kind of a three dimensional space. So um, inside the cell, where do we have vesicles? Um, I'm guessing around the Golgi apparatus. Exactly, because. Um, one uh, because again the vesicles are used for transport within the cell, so um, specifically also proteins. So when remember last time when we were talking about the RER and the way that the proteins are synthesized by the RER and then butt off to the uh, the way in which what the, um, that proteins are synthesized by the rough ah. endoplasmic reticulum mm -hmm. uh, on the from the ribosomes and then um, because they're right on uh, and because they're right on the endoplasmic triculum, they're able to butt off. Um, then they go to the Golgi body. We talked about this last time. Get trans uh, packaged and modifying and 
exocytosis in them. Yes. Yeah. Lovely. So that's transport. <laughs> again, all of this will come up again in later units, um, mainly human physiology, but also, I believe, at other points as well. So let's talk about the origin of cells, 1.5. Um, so cell division and cell origins. Basically, yeah, it's uh, the idea that part of cell theory is that all cells come from pre-existing cells. Um, but then that raises the question, how did the first cell come about? Um, well, basically, it's the idea... Uh, well, basically, um, uh, several billion years ago, um, there was uh, likely some spontaneous generation... Uh, so, not spontaneous generation. Uh, uh, basically, um, probably near some hot vents, some mole uh, some organic molecules formed and they then eventually got to the first cells. I mean, it's, I believe, yeah, it's not quite clear yet, but after that, they managed to reproduce and go on and go on. Um, however, there, uh, we haven't always known this, obviously. Um, and one thing that you need to know is about Pasteur's experiment. You might have heard of pasteurized milk. Yeah, basically, um, he did some boiling stuff. <laughs> Specifically, back in the day, they thought that cells just came out of nowhere, which, I mean, logically makes sense. Like, if you just have something sitting... They didn't have fridges there, so if you just had something sitting out, and then it suddenly starts to spoil, you're like, well, that came out of nowhere. Sort of. Yeah, so there was the idea that there was spontaneous generation. Um, however... Uh, Pasteur then was like, okay, well, uh, let's try this out, and made one flask where he just uh, completely sealed it off, made uh, boiled it up, and then it was, it turned out it was, like, it didn't do anything, but obviously another theory was like, oh, what if it just comes from the air? So what he did is that he did, uh, so he put it in, um, and then did some glass blowing to kind of uh, make it really difficult for anything to be able to enter, but it was... So the tube that led into yeah. the... The boiled liquid was really long and kurvig and shit. Um, and then, uh, basically, again, heated up to make sure that nothing would enter. So that, that heated up to make sure that there was no fungus or bacteria still in there. And then left them out, waited if, to see if anything would happen. And in the end, um, nothing came of those that um, were boiled up. Uh, you might see this in a multiple choice question. I believe I've seen it on a past paper asking which ones would form. Uh, basically, which ones what? Wh which uh, bo uh, which bottles would end up forming um, mm -hmm. bacteria? Um, and it's basically if they have to be boiled because otherwise there is uh, otherwise things microbes could already have been in there that just continued doing their thing while they were in there. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you boil them and have the long swan neck, it means that they cannot enter. And then to make sure that nothing uh, weird was going on, broke them off. And once it was broken off, was done. They, <laughs> uh, they saw it. And then I believe it was um, Miller and Yuri who first looked at it uh, on page 47. Where... Wait. Um... Ah, yes. Yeah, spontane uh, spontaneous generation that was... Um, basically talks about there on page 47 of the textbook and then Pasteur's experiment. Um, 
yeah, and then I believe uh, something that was thought to be a um, only organic molecule, they uh, simulated what, what it would be like to be in those like underwater vents uh, and found that if you cycled it enough, then it would eventually turn to some organic molecules. Yay. <laughs> um, another thing that you need to know about the origin of cells is the endosymbiont theory. A uh, very fancy name for basically saying cell ate another cell and they were like, hey, this is better for the both of us. Yay, let's do this. <laughs> um, so what happened is that there, uh, there was... The, th- the hypothesis goes like this. There was an original cell with a nucleus at which, and an aerobic bacterium. At one point, um, the host cell swallowed up the aerobic bacterium. But didn't digest it. Exactly. Um, and then which was then able to be spun off into heterotrophic eukaryotes. Um, Basically, they understood that it was way more efficient for the two of them if the uh, the, the the smaller thing continued existing in the larger thing because yeah. they, that was the they profited idea. from one another. Um, the thing is that the, uh, the bacterium, so the mitochondria, as we now call it, would, uh, was protected and didn't have to worry about being so prone to the outside world. Meanwhile, the cell was like, great, now I can get free energy. Um, so that would have spun off into animals, for example. However, if uh, there's also autotrophic uh, photos, uh, and that would have come about if when a chloroplast joined in the party and for the same reasons stuck around. And proof for that? Uh, and the proof for that, I believe we talked about it last episode, but I'll just go over it quickly again. Um, so first of all, the mitochondria and the chloroplast both have double membranes, meaning uh, that they, yeah, they have double. They, they probably existed on their yeah, own at some point. In time. They probably exist on their own at some point, at, at some point in time. Um, then they also both have seventy S ribosomes, which are only uh, available in prokaryotes. And the other ones have the uh, other organelles. Have. Yeah. The other, like the rest of the cell has ATS ribosomes. Mm-hmm. Um, then they have a singular cir- single circular strand of naked DNA within them. Um, they're also only 5 to 10 micrometers, which is about the size of prokaryotes. And they are also able to self-replicate. Um, the nucleus is a weird one. It fits some of those things. Like it has a double membrane. It's 5 to 10 micrometers. It can self-replicate. But it has ATS ribosomes and chromosomes um, rather than the other stuff (laughs) um so yeah we're not quite sure if that one fits but the others do yay science um so that's about the origins of cells and now let's get back to the present or i guess just continuous time with mitosis hell yeah so um mitosis uh it's basically cells replicating so first of all you uh just to clarify on what I said earlier about chromosomes. Now, what's the difference between chromosomes and um, just a singular naked strand? Now, um, the reason why it's called naked is because it's not associated with any proteins. Associated with proteins means that it's like... Uh, Wrapping around. Exactly. Because during mitosis, what um, the chromatin is what it's called when it's actually unraveled. So um, naked and chromatin is the same? No, no, because the chromatin still has the proteins. They're just not wrapped around it. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. So the chromatin, uh, it's basically a big jumbled mess. And then it supercoils um, using the histone proteins into um, 
cro- uh, chromosomes. And chrom- so the chromosomes are like the X-shaped thingies that yeah. you can see. S- specifically, the two parts of the chromosome are called the sister chromatids, held together by a centromere. Mm-hmm. Again, it's all... It, there is a bit of terminology, so, but... So, um, the chromatin wraps around... Ne, quatsch. The naked DNA wraps around the... Wraps around the... Proteins? It's not naked DNA, it's chromatin. The naked DNA does not have any proteins, that's... Yeah, but chromatin... No, chromatin still has the proteins, it's just a big mess. Okay, so the chromatin wraps around the... Yeah, it's kind of uh, like... About the proteins. For structure, for... Yeah, it's so we can more easily separate it. Like, if you think about if you have some wired, uh, wired earbuds and then you put them in your pockets and they're all wrapped up, you're not going to be able to nicely tear apart the left earbud from the right earbud to put them in your ears. Um, meanwhile, if you take them apart, nicely separate them and, like, maybe call them up in their separate ways, you can easily whoop, put right. them in. Or get wireless earbuds. I don't know. Um, so, uh, the t- uh, and, yeah... So that's the basic idea about the supercoiling. We don't know exactly how it... Ha- we don't need to know how it happens. I'm pretty sure there is knowledge about it, but... Yeah. We don't Not have it. Does it exist? <laughs> <laughs> so, now the faces of mitosis. Um, now IPMAT, PMAT. PMAT. Um, important interface, not part of mitosis. Oh. Okay, never mind. PMAT, PMAT. <laughs> nee, PMAT, MAT. What else of us? Uh, no, no, that's when we're getting to meiosis, where it happens twice. This one, <laughs> we don't have to worry about meiosis yet. That's unit three. Okay. Um, so the uh, so actually, then let's first quickly cover the cell cycle, and then we can get into the specific. Mm-hmm. Se- so the cell cycle, it's G. We've got interphase, which consists of G one, the S phase, and G two, and the cell cycle, which consists of prophase, metaphase, anaphase, and telophase. Cytokinesis isn't really a phase might have learned it as that, but it's actually the, just the process of splitting. Mm-hmm. Um, now, let's specifically look at mit- mitosis. Just for following sake, we're on page 15. Yeah, page 15 of the um, study guide and page, you can check. Ah, uh, page 52. Yeah. So basically, actually, let's first talk about... Um, so a cell spends most of its time in interface. Now, G1, uh, it's basically, I believe it... Uh, replicate uh, it maybe gr- grows bigger um, and everything except for the chromosomes are duplicated then um, in the S phase the it says each of the chromosomes but remember at this point it's all a large uncoiled mess so just the DNA itself gets replicated mm-hmm. and then in G2 that's just the space between um, S and mitosis now mitosis um, for, uh, so again, it's PMAT, prophase, metaphase, anaphase, telophase. Um, so prophase, pro being like before, mm-hmm. um, it's the, uh, what, what we do is that, so there's kind of two main things going on. Oh, so yeah, sorry, just, chromosomes just become shorter and fatter by coiling. Yeah. And G2 is also just the preparation of, uh, division where it's the replication of some of the organelles. Yeah. Okay, so we're so for interphase it's G one, S phase and G two. Exactly. And then we start with mitosis, which is prophase, metaphase, anaphase, telophase. Yes. So the um 
So yeah, the DNA supercoils and condenses, so it becomes, at that point, it becomes visible as chromosomes. So if you're looking through a microscope and you see chromosomes, that means it's in mitosis. Mm -hmm. That's one of the ways, because you, when you have to calculate the mitotic index, um, like we had to uh, count basically a few hund hundreds of cells <laughs> um, and note how many of them were in mitosis. Um, and But it, not only that, but also the centrosomes. Uh, it's important that you don't mix up the centromeres and the centrosomes. You can think of it as the centromeres are in the middle of the chromosomes. Ah, centrosomes and titinga here am Ende. Yeah, centro uh, centrosomes are the ones that are uh, pulling them apart. So centrosomes are splitting them. Uh -huh. I mean, what centromeres are in the middle of them. So uh, the centrosomes migrate to the opposite poles. And the uh, nuclear membrane starts to disintegrate. Because remember, we have a nuclear membrane about the nucleus, but we can't pull apart the chromosomes if they're stuck in the nucleus. So the, the membrane of the nucleus starts to like disagree. Yeah. Uh, disagree, disappear. Disintegrate. Oh, yeah. um, and, then this, uh, and also a spindle forms. So they're like microtubules that are going to be pulling apart them. Now, um, a metaphase... What happens? Uh, so what happens now is that they line up, lining up in the middle metaphase. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, yeah, they're just, they're just aligned in the middle now, and the um, and the spindles are attaching to them. Mm -hmm. um, the next anaphase, where they're pulled apart, anaphase. Um, so it's the separation of the sister chromatids, because remember, thus far with the iconic X shape. Um, with a centromere in the middle, um, they've been, uh, they're the same. So now we're uh, so now we're pulling them apart to opposite sides of the pole, uh, or to the opposite poles of the thing. Um, of the cell. So, uh, kinetochords. What? I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm reading that correctly. Are pulling them to the <laughs> um, other side. Uh, it's also interesting to note, um, you need to know how many N's. So you might see descriptions of 1N, 2N, 4N. Uh, now, 2N is that, uh, that's what most of the time your um, cells will be having. So that's tw uh, that would be 46 chromosomes in humans. Um, the thing is that when the chromosomes are still together, they still only count as one chromosome. Yes. So when we duplicate the DNA and then we supercoil and put them into um, one, cr uh, and we have the two sister chromatids sticking together, mm -hmm. that still counts as two N because they're still together. <sighs> okay. The only time that they actually count as four N is when the, uh, is during anaphase. That's the only time they're really tetraploid because at that point they're apart, but they're not in separate cells yet. Okay. And um, one N. One N. We see that in gametes, sex cells. Basically, when there's just one sister chromatid of each. No, no, no. Because at that, that's even further apart. I believe. It's, um, remember, that's when you only have twenty three uh, chromosomes rather than forty six in humans. Okay. Um, so yeah, and the other um, microtubules lengthen, and finally, um, it's telophase, where basically we've uh, they've they're on separate sides now. And the nuclear membranes start to form again. Then the spindles break down. And then the chromosomes uncoil. 
and split apart. So and it, we're ready for two clones of each other. I mean, yeah, they're they are clones. The they're, same. they're separate. They uh, no, they're separate, but they're identical. Okay. Um. Yeah. So the the so cytokinesis is just the division of the cytoplasm to form the two cells. Um, so in animal cells, it's just the membrane is pulled in, uh, inwards until it meets in the center. And then in plant cells, they have to form a new cell wall. Um, the thing is, one thing you need to do, uh, you do need to note is that these divisions are totally arbitrary. It's just a model that humans have made to make it more understandable to us. Um, so that's why, for example, if you look in the um, biology uh, study guide, you'll see that it's split up into like early prophase, late prophase, early telophase, late telophase. However, you are still expected to um, be able to identify what state of mitosis a cell is in mm -hmm. when given a picture or a micrograph. Mm -hmm. So basically, if they're, um, if they're all still in the middle and there's you can see a nuclear membrane, it's uh, probably prophase, then so sorry if they're like in a nucleus they're prophase if they're lined up in the middle it's metaphase if they're being pulled apart it's anaphase if they're already on separate uh, places it's telophase mm -hmm. okay um, so yeah that's the cell cycle and the thing is though we're not just going to be randomly wildly doing whatever we ah, want wait have we talked about cyclins that's why that's I was leading right into that that's why we need ah. cyclins to control it to control what the cell cycle. Ah, uh, lovely, okay. That's why they're called cyclones. Ah, um, uh, cycle, okay. <laughs> so you, really the main things that you need to know is that what, when they appear, uh, so when, they're, when they peak and their names. So we've got, in order, a cyclone in D, cyclone E, cyclone A, and cyclone B. Do we need to know them? You need to know them, yeah. Yes. Uh, I don't know them. <laughs> Does change the fact that you need to know them. <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, and mainly just where they peak. Um, so cyclin D. Uh, there's a graph on page fifteen of the uh, study guide and on page fifty six of the textbook. Textbook. So, the basic idea is that um, then when they then. When they're released, they bind to cyclin-dependent kinases, which are enzymes, and then those kinases bind to phosphates to other proteins, activating them. Nochmal. We so, need cyclins for what exactly? So the cyclins uh, bind to en uh, so a specific type of enzyme. Those enzymes bind to phosphates and to other proteins, which activate them. To do what? Mitosis. So to start off mitosis, we need cyclin. Cy well, several cyclins, and specifically the different phases of mitosis. So cyclin uh, D is just kind of there the whole time, but it makes it uh, it makes a transition from G one into S phase. Mm -hmm. uh, cyclin E basically, um, yeah, uh, prepares uh, the DNA. That that's why you see it peaking during S phase. Ah, so it prepares the cell for DNA replication. Exactly. Um, cyclin A um, actually uh, also activates DNA yeah. replication inside the nucleus, also in S phase, so cyclin E and A both happen in S phase. Or like but like, cy role. cyclin E peaks, yeah, peaks. Uh, peaks at the beginning of S phase, A at the end of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then I believe uh, cyclin B promotes the assembly yeah. of the mitotic spindle and other tasks in the cytoplasm to prepare for mitosis. 
So basically it peaks uh, right right before mitosis because it's busy getting all of that work started and then it's fine. It, yeah. Because then, then we've kicked it off and it's good to go. Okay. Okay, we're almost done with unit one. <laughs> uh, the last... Um, I mean, there's a b- bit about cyclones being serendipity. So it's an it was a happy accident <laughs> that we found out, or we found out by them by accident. But the last thing we need to know is tumor formation. So essentially, um, it's called oncogenesis. If you want to sound fancy, and it's the uh, basically it's you're losing control of the cell cycle. The thing about tumors is that they just replicate endlessly as much as they want, as much as possible. And why don't normal cells replicate? Because, remember, we're in control of them. Specifically, because of the cyclones. Yes, and of um, genes called oncogenes. So they're in control of the cell cycle. Normally. Yes. However, the issue is when we get mutations. The thing is because, you have to imagine, we're the product of billions of years of evolution. What uh, The DNA we have right now makes sense mostly. And so basically all mutations, like mutations, the vast majority of them are either neutral or bad. Mm-hmm. There's, very, there's very few chances any mutations are going to be good, but if they, if they are, then they're going to um, further themselves because we're going to be replicate more. But that's all part of like unit five, I believe, evolution. Um, are there any cool modern mutations? Are there people born with like wings? Okay, that was okay that, that's a question. We can dis- we can discuss that in um, we can discuss. Well, the thing that you need to know is that mutations aren't really repl- They don't really invent new things. They just kind of modify what's already there. Ah, uh, yeah. Hmm. Um, so it's very unlikely that we're gonna start developing wings. The thing is that you wouldn't only need to be able to have useful because you can't have just. Because to start developing wings, the body would have to put in energy to have like half wings at first because you'd have to slowly develop them. Mm. That's why, for example, I believe there are some um, animals that have sort of a third eye, but the thing, uh, it's just a light um, res- receptive spot. Oh. And because, but that's already useful to them, and that's why they're. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we might have been able to continue developing eyes because even having just the beginning of them was already useful. Meanwhile, if we just have suddenly some stubs on the back, <laughs> wings that won't help us, uh, that won't make us fly, that's going to be just useless energy that our body is wasting and could be spending on something more productive. But all of the, we're getting off topic. This is unit, <laughs> this is unit five of evolution. Um, so, um, so sorry, you're not gonna grow uh, our. And remember, evolution happens across a population, not across individuals. So now, oncogenes. Um, what what I was getting at is that mutations are mostly negative, and one of uh, and the thing is they're also relatively rare. But consider how many cells you have, and now consider how many times they're replicating. Um, Just for context, we have a lot of cells. Yes. Just for people who um, don't know. Billions of cells, and so basically, considering they're replicating all the time, the chance that any one of them is going to mutate is act become significant. Um, specifically, the thing is that if there's just a random mutation, that it might not proliferate. But because if there's mut- proliferate, uh, continue to exist and mm-hmm. like um, spread more. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, if you lose control of the cell cycle, then they'll just start replicating each other and the faulty DNA as well. Mm. Um, so basically when it starts producing a mass of cells, it's called a primary tumor. Um, but it doesn't necessarily need to be malignant. So malignant is when it's negative. 
benign is when it's positive. Mm-hmm. Um, not like not positive, but, but like it's, it, it it doesn't it it, 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 it won't kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the it becomes a really issue. Uh, it becomes a big issue if parts of the tumor start to break off, and spread to other places. So that's called metastasis. Called? Ah, lovely. Um, and then the issue is when you start getting tumors and they start forming in essential places like your lungs or your brain. Hmm. Cancer sucks. Yeah. Specifically, um, currently we don't really have that good of a method. Like we do have treatments for cancer. Whenever anyone says there's a cure for cancer, well, we do have them. They just kind of suck. Yeah. At the moment, our options are really surgery, so cutting it out. The issue with that is if it's already metastasized. Meta- if it's already undergone metastasis and it's already broken off and it's now in other places, that's not great. Um, radi- uh, then there's uh, radiation. So basically, uh, it just disrupts all the cell division and just burns it out completely. But for that, you have to also, I think, be very focused. Or chemotherapy, which is basically just poisoning your body. In order to kill the tumor yeah, it, cells. And it but pre- in the meantime, you're also killing yourself. So. Yeah, that's that's kind of the issue. It's, uh, it kills quickly replicating cells, which is also why like your hair usually falls out or becomes really... And also because just the poison's in it. Mm-hmm. The poison's in the hair and it's trying to like get them out and that's why... It, yeah. Uh, basically, it's more effective to prevent it. <laughs> cancer than try and deal with it. One of the things, which is even a box on in the notebook, is don't smoke. Yeah, that works. <laughs> perfectly for all of us so it's um not only has there been a positive correlation correlation does not always equal causation but in this case there's also parts of it that are carcinogenic um exercise so keep your body healthy um and just live a healthy lifestyle don't be stupid um yeah and also wear sunscreen yeah sunscreen is cool because you have to consider anything that increases mutations is going to increase your risk of cancer. So, for example, um, anything that destroys your cells, so in this case, uh, or causes mutations. So, for example, um, uh, so for example, radiation that's going to be more likely to cause mutations. And wait, I- don't we don't we fight tumor with radiation? Yes, but that's I believe that's a different. <laughs> okay, because <laughs> uh, that would be kind of stupid. It, it disrupts cell division. Um, it's try- like specifically burning them out. Um, otherwise, also get screened for cancer. Regularly. Like, yeah, especially especially. I mean, I'm I'll getting make some advertisements for your mom. <laughs> <laughs> for context, my mother uh, works uh, for a breast cancer screening service. Although to be fair, probably most of the people listening to this do not have to worry about cancer yet. <laughs> Ooh, nice. So yeah, but uh, with that PSA, I believe. We're done with unit one. Yay, it only took us one and a half hours. To be fair, it is supposed to take 15 hours of teaching time, which is why this shouldn't be your only source. Exactly. Um, and I guess next time we'll be looking at molecular biology. Yay. So, yeah. Uh, Do some yoga. I guess. Uh, for context, she is currently doing the downward dog next to me. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye.